Hello there. Don't have a good day. Have a great day. Talk to me, Goose. Restless. You steal the Declaration of Independence. Why? So simple. I could do this all day. Are you watching closely? Welcome, everybody, to the One-Eyed Film Podcast. I'm your host, Seth Mossberg, and today we have Isaac back with us to talk about Andor once again. Thanks for having me back, Seth. Yeah, of course. We finished off Andor Part 1, talking about Episodes 1 through 6, and now we're here to talk about Episodes 7 through 12. And we're going to do a little bit different of approach. We're going to be talking about the monologues, because there are a lot of monologues in this second half of the series, and they really kind of epitomize what the show is about and how we can connect with these characters on a deeper level. And I want to talk about that really quick. In creating a story, there are sometimes moments where you have to get inside the protagonist's mind or a character's mind. And there are a couple ways to do that. I can think of three. One of them is a godlike voiceover where you have a another character who somehow can put the thoughts of this person. And so they tell you what they're thinking and that conveys to the audience what that person is thinking. The other way is to do a first person monologue where you can hear the character's thoughts and that symbolizes that we are almost that character that we are one in the same with that character and so therefore we are allowed to hear what they're thinking but i think the best way is the third way and that is through monologues either a character explaining something as we'll see with luthan or in a manifesto like we will see with nemec and his manifesto that he wrote out before he died it's ways to relate to the character without it being cheesy or forced and i think that with the ever presence of these monologues, it's really a way to connect with this show and the characters in the show. Well, I do want to say not only is it just the way that characters speak that we get to see what their their thoughts are, but also through the actions that they take and the facial expressions that they use. That's why some actors are so phenomenal with what they do in live action. It's because they're able to use the slightest twitch of an eyebrow or the, the nervous twitching of a cheek that just really hammers home what they're thinking and feeling yeah for sure and we'll also be talking about the other things along the way there are some great moments in this second half of the show that we'll be discussing so through the first six episodes of andor and part one of this podcast the intro music really has been like a character of its own we've gotten to see how it's evolved episode to episode just based on what is kind of happening in that episode it kind of gives us a little bit of a foreshadowing kind of sets us in a mood that we need to be in or to really let the episode hit home to us episode seven the intro music starts off with a brass piece and what i really got from this was a hopeful and declaratory way of starting the episode and starting the second half of this tv series because as a refresher the rebels just completed their heist on aldani it just took 800,000 credits from the Empire. And the galaxy is talking about this. And it's it, the episode starts off with us feeling like we are celebrating with Rebels. I don't know what it felt like to you, but it felt like to me, episode 7, coming off of the Aldani arc and the bank heist, it, it didn't feel all that spectacular. It kind of just felt like a ho-hum episode. I would say that's because, like we talked about in part 1, there are these sagas almost of three episodes where they have a story that spans those three episodes and it does its place in the greater story of the season. And having just come off of the peak of the halfway point of the series, it now feels weird to come off of that and be kind of in the setting up phase again of the saga, the three episode saga. 
And so there's a lot of things that in this episode that are not really noteworthy, but have their place because they help build to the next part of the story. Yeah, I mean, episode seven, when I was looking up, like, as you said, the, the kind of series of episodes, I was looking up the list of those, episode seven, it's a list where episode seven was a part of the Aldani arc and where it was part of this upcoming arc people couldn't understand really what it was supposed to be it's kind of just a standalone episode just getting us from point a to point b and i think there was some almost backlash from how they released episodes i mean yes they they used to do that in tv where you would have a 21 episode season and each episode would be released each week but with something like andor where it was very obviously written to be four parts of a story split into 12 episodes three episodes each it almost felt as though they could have released them in four weeks, three episodes each, basically a movie on its own, and it would have worked fine. I think it would have been a better pacing for the show, and that's possibly why people felt it was slow, is because not a lot happened, let's say, in episode seven, and now you have to wait a week to have that excitement that you had when, like, when you watched episode six. It felt very spaced out and slow, and that's what some people had a problem with. Yeah, it was... I know for myself, after I finished watching episode six... And the awesome Eye of Aldani, and oh, it was awesome. And we came to episode seven, and I finished watching it. I was kind of just sitting there thinking, is that it? That's all I get? There's nothing else? It it brought me back down. I almost wasn't excited to start next episode. Yeah. So with that said, the things that really are noteworthy from this episode are Mon Mothma and Luthen talking. Again, they have both heard about how Aldani was a quote-unquote success, but Mon Mothma is very empathetic to what had happened and is thinking more of the people where Luthen is seeing it as a mission that was a success regardless of how many people they lost. And just the disconnect between these two characters was really evident here where they, the, their sympathy differed greatly. Yeah, this episode especially, we start to kind of see the darker side of Luthen. We get to kind of see, and, and we see later on when he has his monologue, we really get to see where his thoughts are and why he kind of is the way that he is. And then by the end of the episode, we have Cassian apparently living his best life now. I'm just saying. He's he's taking his credits. <laughs> he's he's living in luxury down on the beach. Space Miami. <laughs> Space Miami. And yet... Not everything is nice and easy down there. There are still patrols down there. From what I understand, there's just people running, and he's kind of glancing over his shoulder trying to figure out what's going on. But he does it in, in such a way where he keeps doing it repeatedly, and he picks up his pace where it makes him look suspicious. And he just kind of gets stopped by the guard, and then the guard is just like, you know what? You're just a part of it. We're going to assume so. Guilty until proven innocent. Yes, definitely guilty until proven innocent. This section, this ending of the episode, really shows the corruption that the Empire is showing. Like, a lot of it has almost been a beneficial telling of what the Empire is doing, at least to the to the people who are in that life. They believe they are doing the right thing. And yet, this is pretty obvious that the Empire is very corrupt. The guards are, at the very least, not trained to taken the correct people. So while Cassian had just literally committed the biggest heist in Star Wars history, he is arrested for the wrong reason as a guilty until proven innocent. So it is funny that he was guilty, but not for what they arrested him for. I would argue it's not corruption. It's just showing us the, the almost militarized state that the Empire is now. Yeah, and when even when they get to the, the court where they're just filing people through that they've just captured just because and they they're basically pick a card any card for your sentence um, <laughs> and they're yeah. they're just basically randomly assigning sentences to these people who are 
either justly or unjustly arrested. So it's just a interesting that this is a big turning point in the series, and it's the injustice of the empire and the court system and whatever. Well, when you listen to what the judge says that his charges are, and Cassian was just walking when all of this unfolded and he got arrested, he's charged with civil disruption, anti-imperial speech, fleeing the scene of anti-imperial activity, attempted damage to imperial property, and then he gets threatened with a resisting judgment charge. This is a police state. This is. This sounds <laughs> like... You could replace Imperial with Nazi or Russian, and it would fit perfectly into World War II. I almost forgot. We also met a KX unit, which would be the, his future friend, K2SO, which I believe we'll probably meet in Season 2. But That's you, you, not K2SO. It's not, it's no. Not. They give you kind of a, a fake-out, where you see a KX droid, and you think for a split second, oh, it's K2SO. No, it's just, a, it's just their kind of military droids. It's a good misdirect on their part especially knowing that that droid is associated with Cassian, and yet it's not. The episode 8 intro music, it's it's off-key. It, it just jangles your nerves, suspenseful. It just doesn't feel right. It doesn't feel like it should be there. It seems almost warped, like they recorded a piece of music that kind of shifted different instruments back and sped some up and slowed some down. It just doesn't feel right. It's kind okay. of like the prison that Asian is sent to and just the whole way that that went down. It just doesn't feel right. It's just a very distorted version of the theme. Episode 8 is actually a really interesting one for me because this is where the world building really grows. I mean, we've already been to Aldani and seen the eye. That was a huge world building moment. But episode 8 is a really interesting prison planet. Not a prison planet, a prison, a location where there's a prison. And it's got a unique twist that just is different enough that you understand that it's Star Wars, but it's understandable and grounded in the real world that you understand exactly what the ever-present threat is to these prisoners. Things are things are recognizable, but not the same. But this prison that he's brought to, the ever-present threat of being shocked is almost terrifying. And it's a good decision on the Empire's part to have this design. Like, that is terrifying to know that you could, you and your teammates could literally be shocked at any moment and be in so much pain just because they think you did something wrong. So it's a good way to keep them in line, but it's terrifying for us as the viewer and also for Cassian and any of the workers. To clarify, the floors shock the prisoners. Yes, it's not like a shock rod or anything. Correct. And all the prisoners are barefoot, so the threat is at any time they could be shocked. It could be out of the blue, it could be somebody just got bored and decided to flick a switch. It's, it's a very looming, kind of just hanging over your shoulder, like at any moment I could be dead. And yet the way they handle the guards and how they write the guards, they realize, the prisoners realize that their downfall is that they're not organized. They have this incredibly complex system to keep their prisoners in line, but the guards themselves are not that well kept. And they're very out of line and don't know what they're doing. And they use, the prisoners use that to their advantage in the escape in a, in a couple episodes. Absolutely. I mean, the guards, almost all of them are either too young to really be tested or too old to not really be able to do much of anything. Big thing about these prison systems is the number seven. When oh, we yeah. first see the prisons, they're kind of floating on a lake and there's seven of them. There are seven sides to the prison. There are... 
seven rooms per floor, there are seven floors, there are seven tables per room, and seven people per table. Seven's an important number in this episode, just like it is to Christianity. Seven is supposed to be the perfect numbers. Seven is the holy number. It's supposed to be perfection. It's supposed to represent that. And I think, obviously, there's some reflection of that from our real world to the Star Wars world. The Whoever built these buildings and staffed them with prisoners understood that it's supposed to be everything works like clockwork. Everything is perfect. Everything goes according to plan. And yet, it's a it's a almost misnomer because the guards don't live that life of perfection and strictness as they force the prisoners to. And again, they use that to their advantage to escape. So all of this perfect number, perfect schedule, perfect everything eventually goes against them and it's their downfall. So as I mentioned before, all of the prisoners are barefoot because they can get shocked at any time from the floor. Guards, however, have these special, I, I think they're boots, that protect them from getting shocked. Did you or did you not think that boots were going to be super important to their escape? I did because they were focusing so much on the boots that weren't being worn on the walls. It it was a really good misdirection by both the writers and the videographers, director, whoever that was. I too was absolutely convinced one of the first things the prisoners were going to do when they break out is just grab the boots and throw them on. See, that's something that I would say is not misdirection and is actually probably a flaw. It is an unused Chekhov's gun. And it's it's the promise that something is going to be important and then never delivering on that. So I would actually disagree with you in that. It was a poor way to show that they were important. Yes, they wanted to show that the guards were wearing boots and that that's what kept them safe. And yet, It was shown in a way as though it was going to be important for the prisoner's escape, but it wasn't. I would disagree with you, Seth, because once we get to a prison break, I would say it would make that prison break all the more exciting if they didn't get the boots, because then the thought could be at any moment, floors could get fried and the break just shuts down right there. Game over. It makes it exciting. It does. I agree that not using the boots in that finale, not the finale, the climax of the prison escape, does make it, you know, what if somebody comes back and turns it back on? But from a filmmaking perspective, I would call that a unused Chekhov's gun. Episode 9, continuing the storyline from episode 8, we're really, really seeing what it's like living life as a prisoner. What's the timeline? So in episode 8, we get a cut and or sleeping to him waking up and his little shift counter being down by 30. So the assumption is it's been 30 days, 30 day kind of cut. So it's definitely been enough time to learn a habit, understand this is your life. There's no real getting out of it. And yet Andor is still very adamant on getting out. I I believe he's actually been working on a plan this whole time and figuring out who's on his side, who can he trust. And I believe we see a couple of those guys that are talking to each other, still trying to figure out a plan. And so even after 30 days, he has not lost hope to get out. Intro music for episode nine. The music starts off very fast paced. It's like a techno. You could kind of say, like all techno instruments, fast-paced, exciting. I felt like, to me, it kind of felt like a headbanger kind of music, just something you want to nod your head to. But the actual, like, intro to the the actual Andor theme is very slow and drawn out. Kind of just to make us feel like this is what Andor feels. There's excitement during the day, but it's really just long and drawn out. Why do you think that is? I think they're just trying to kind of get us into the mood of, as you said, this is everyday life now. This is what it is. You're not going to get any better than this. 
stuck where you're at. Mm -hmm. As much as we said the intro music is a character by itself, it is kind of a character with Andor. And obviously the show is following him, so it kind of is obvious. But it's less of its own character and more of a representation of Andor's either current state or his state of this episode. We see the prisoners putting stuff together as their job. They have to do it for 12 hours straight. What did you think those pieces were for? Yeah, I saw a lot of theories online for sure. I honestly sided with the thought that they were the probe droids because they kind of had almost tentacles or they were, you know, they stuck out a little bit. But I didn't hold fast to that one because I was like, you know, it doesn't, It's there's only three sides to it. it and they're really thick compared to the, the arms of the probe droid. But honestly, I had no clue. I, I actually had, hadn't seen that theory. I saw uh, Death Star, Star Destroyer, TIE Fighter parts. I, I honestly kind of sided with the TIE Fighter parts. Didn't seem quite right, but it was the closest thing I could think of to it. I think the TIE Fighter would have been more practical because it has six sides and obviously three-sided three structure that they're building. It would have made more sense to be a TIE Fighter, but in the end, the post credit scene showed that it was a part of the Death Star, which was fine. It just showed that they were manual labor to build the Death Star, and they didn't know it. But also, that's how you should do a post-credit scene. I think that Marvel has ruined post-credit scenes to think that you need to stay through the entirety of the credits, which, again, I think they do it partly because they want people to appreciate all the hard work that went into it. But also, the idea that you're going to miss something essential to the plot, I think specifically of the one Marvel movie that got a sneak peek into Captain America Civil War. Including that made it feel as though you were missing out on the story of the entire movie by not seeing it. And Marvel has made it either you're going to get a funny joke at the end or you're going to get a legitimate teaser for the next movie. And it's kind of a hit or miss, but both ways I think are a little redundant. With the ending of Andor, the post credit scene of the entire show, showing what these pieces that they were building actually do, and it just being a piece to the Death Star, is really rewarding to the fact that it doesn't add anything to the story, it doesn't take anything away, it's just a little, hey, you guys were wondering, so here it is. It's a nod to the fans, almost. Well, it's not even a nod, it's like, we want to include this, it doesn't fit in an episode, so we'll put it after. Also interesting, though, that Andor helps make the Death Star that he later helps steal the plans for to help blow it up. Full circle. There are a lot of moments in the show that got me excited to be watching it. More than just an anticipation for the next episode, the moment when Cassian is standing in the hallway and they're about to turn on the floor and he's like yelling at everyone about the, the, the platform that got fried and they're like, he's like, wake up guys, this isn't normal. You should, you should, we should be doing something. And they're like, Cassian, get off the floor. And, and literally, I know they edited this. So you were on the edge of your seat. He could not have stepped off any later than he did. That was one of those moments. You know, obviously, Andor makes it because he's in Rogue One. But you almost think he could die or he could get shocked unconscious. The tension builds so well in that scene specifically. If you look at the timestamps, I believe it's this this countdown. Announcer dude, or the PA guy, says 30 seconds till floors activate. And if you look at the timestamps, I believe it is exactly 30 seconds afterwards that the floor turns on. Yeah, I believe it. So masterfully done. Because we have like an internal clock, and when he says 30 seconds, we're like, okay, 30 seconds, 30 seconds, 30 seconds. 30 seconds is almost up. Better get going really fast now. Yeah. Oh, he just made it. Okay, we're good. And the music grows with it too. And yeah, it was masterfully done. But this is also 
Cassian get getting into Kino's head. Kino is has been the head of that floor for so long. He's he takes his job very seriously, and yet Cassian is getting into his head, kind of telling him, "Hey, something's not right here." And it takes the death of Olaf and how the guards handle that situation to get Kino to wake up and realize he's he as the leader is on the wrong side. He needs to be with the men and help plan this escape. Otherwise, everyone is in danger. I was I was so sad when Olaf yeah. died. He's just an old man, and I I was I was cheering for him to get out, even though I figured he was dead already. Yeah, he's he was kind of not there mentally anymore, and you could kind of tell he was fading. And it was even more heartbreaking when Olaf suffers a stroke, and then the doctor comes in on top of that and and kills him with a shot. It's it just shows their heartlessness, and I believe the doctor even says he's not a doctor. He's there to just clean up the mess and keep things moving. They don't actually want to deal with anyone's health. They just need things to keep moving. Yeah, the doctor actually says, there's nothing I can do to save him. He's had a massive stroke. Can't help him. I can't help anyone. He, he's literally saying, I'm, I'm not a doctor. I'm just here to walk in and be like, yep, this guy's dead. Let me take care of it for you. Yeah, and it's at this moment, there's a, there's a great callback because Cassian was really in Kino's face at one point saying, how many guards per floor? How many guards per floor? And Kino was just like, I'm not telling you. It's not, I, I cannot tell you that they will kill me if I tell you. And it's at this moment when he realizes the heartlessness of the people he's working for that he gives him an answer. And I think, I think that gave a, a great ending to that episode because you kind of knew the next episode was going to be the big one. Well, it's not only that he sees the heartlessness of them, but he also hears what happened to Floor 2, because up to this point, nobody knew what had happened. And it's when they're talking to the doctor while he's attending to Ula. They're asking him, He's like, they're like, please just tell us what happened. Give us the information. The doctor tells him, you'll want to keep your men in line. Kino's like, what do you mean keep my men in line? What happened down on two? To which the doctor responds, they made a mistake. A man who was just released on four ended up back on two the next day. Ward got out on the floor and they killed them all. And that also and, shows... And this is a... And that also shows that they're not releasing people. They're just recycling them and bringing them back into the production line. And we see this at the beginning of episode 10. We see a kind of pep speech that Kino gives to the other inmates that kind of highlights this. Kind of continuing on the conversation that Cassian and Kino had at the end of episode 9 as they're walking away from Olaf's dead body. Cassian is pressuring Kino. He's like, you need to, you need to riot tomorrow. We need to make our escape tomorrow. We'll never have a better chance. They're going to bring the new guy in. Blah, 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 blah. And Kino's just fed up with him. What do you mean escape? And why does it have to be tomorrow? And again, Cassian explains, like, well, they're going to bring the new guy in. We've got a plan. And Kino just kind of mocks Cassian. It's like, you and Melshi and another dude have a plan? Cassian's like, listen to me. They don't have enough guards, and they know it. They're afraid. Right now, they're afraid. And, and Kino's like, yeah. Afraid of what? Cassian said, well, they just killed 100 men to keep them quiet. What would you call that? And Kino responds, I'd call that power. And that's interesting to me. That Kino would call that power. Kino would call the ability to kill people just to keep them quiet power. Okay, how so? Kino is in charge of the floor that Cassian works on. He's in charge of those people. He has that power. He has the power to tell people whether or not they can be punished. I don't know if he understands that they have the ability to kill people with these floors. And so the fact that it, they're just able to do that surprises me that Kino would call that power. The intro music to episode 10, it's a slow, somber 
almost funeral-like dirge to start off. Then it, it swells into something that gets it's proud and strong. And an interesting thing that I noticed is right at the very end, the force theme or the binary sunset theme from the very from the old Star Wars when Luke is looking on Tatooine towards the setting sun. That seems to be evident within it right at the very end. You like hear the opening couple of notes. Hmm. And yeah. I don't know why. I don't, I don't fully know why. Yeah, that's interesting. If they meant to put that in there, which I'm sure it's not an accident. So this episode gave me the most excitement I have felt with any sort of movie or TV show in a long time. I remember <laughs> feeling this, you know, back when I saw the first Star Wars, back when I saw the Marvel movies when they were good and exciting. Edge of my seat excitement. Really, anything could go down. And it wasn't predictable. It was entertaining. And it was inspiring. It was an incredible, incredible episode showing how all of this has been building up to this point. And obviously we knew it was going to happen. I mean, we didn't know, no, but everything was pointing to a prison breakout. And again, same with the eye on Aldani. It had to be good. If it was just mediocre, it would be a big letdown. The fact that it was entertaining and riveting and everything good to say about it just goes to show how movies and TV shows can still be entertaining and not just repeat the same old story same old structure new things can be created and it can be exciting when i saw this episode i think i may have been jumping around not just edge of my seat it was just action-packed we went from one thing to another there was monologue there was character development it, it was just unbelievable and the best part about it is other than Asian and melshi who we know get out of there everybody else is expendable we have no idea if tino's gonna get shot down if the moment he turns a corner. You have no idea if Cassian's gonna get shot as he turns a corner and has to crawl out or something. It, it's so good. They make it so tense and you have no idea what's gonna happen next. I didn't even realize Melshi was a character in Rogue One the first time I watched it. It took me a episode breakdown to realize, oh yeah, he's gonna be in Rogue One. So I didn't even know that this is where they introduced him. And I'm sure the people who really liked Rogue One and have watched him multiple times, not me, have recognize Melshi and I didn't so props to them for introducing a character that you know will show up later but doesn't have like a huge role to play so as the prisoners wake up after they learned what happened to floor two came up with a plan of how they were going to do things they, they line up on the edge of their bunks ready to go ready to start the day and Kino has such a great like halftime speech that he just gives up he says listen up we are done with counting shifts there is only then and now. There is only one way out. Play it how you want, but I'm going to assume that I'm dead. And take it from there. There's no sense in warning the night shift. They'll hear about it one way or another soon enough. Let's make it look good. I heard that and I was like, yeah, whatever you want, I'll do it. Yes, coach, let's go. <laughs> sir, yes, sir. Let's go. Yeah, I was like, pull me in, let's go. Fire it up. <laughs> yes, I have to say, this was the episode that I realized, yes, Andy Serkis has technically been in Star Wars as Snoke, but to bring him back in this role and to have him so emotive, he has spent years being extra under the mocap suit because you have to be extra so that your expressions can translate over the motion capture data. But that has also played into his roles when he's not in mocap. And these faces that he makes are so intense and driving and crazy to to watch him perform in this way is like I said, it's just intense. It's it's incredible. Like I said, it gets you fired up 
and you feel like you're going to be a part of the prison break. Yeah, the emotions that make you feel make you feel like you are there and you have a responsibility to do it right. And by the time they get out, a, a very well choreographed escape, and you can kind of feel the sense of them taking over as the guards obviously were not prepared for this, but slowly they get the blasters, but the blasters are not just pew-pew guns anymore. They are damaging guns that you can see people dropping like flies when they get hit. It's no, oh, you're going to get a little... A little, a little wound. You're gonna get a little scratch. No, the the weight of all the death that goes on in this episode is terrifying. Understanding that any stray blaster could could kill you gives it weight and gives it a realism that is commendable. It's not just people dropping like flies. It's people getting thrown backwards. It has a force to it. Yeah. No, no pun intended. It's... A force to the <laughs> bullet, the the shot that throws them backwards, and it's it's almost horrifying. Yeah, yeah it's. It makes you think, holy cow, this is scary. It, as you said, it adds tension to the scene, thinking at any moment, one of our characters could just get blown backwards. Yeah, but as they're slowly taking over the entirety of the prison, you feel a, a, a growing sense of victory. And after like Kino's motivational speech to keep going one way out, it's, it's incredible to be pushed forward by this emotion. And Andy Serkis put his put his soul into this performance just as much as any of his other performances. Again, along with the building force of the escape that you're feeling, his his speech really helped push the story forward and the excitement and kept it going. Yeah, it's. I, th- I think you put it really well. He put his soul into this performance. And it shows. How long we hang on, how far we get, how many of us make it out, all of that is now up to us. We have deactivated every floor in the facility. All the floors are cold. Wherever you are, right now, get up. Stop the work. Get out of your cells. Take charge and start climbing. They don't have enough guards and they know it. If we wait until they figure that out, it'll be too late. We will never have a better chance than this. And I would rather die trying to take them down than giving them what they want. We know they fried a hundred men on level two. We know that they are making up our sentences. As we go along, we know that no one outside here knows what's happening. And now we know that when they say we are being released, we are being transferred to some other prison to go and die. And that ends today. There is one way out. Right now, the building is ours. You need to run, climb, kill! You need to help each other. You see someone who's confused, someone who's lost. You get them moving and you keep them moving until we put this place behind us. Even just listening to it again and reading it, oh, I get goosebumps from it. I'm like, so good. Yep, I, even without the entire buildup of the episode to that point, it was very, very 
like inspirational. The emotion that he's able to put to it is unbelievable. For sure. And yet we're, we, we start to get connected to Kino and we get to the edge of the building. Over the lake, he stops and he looks at Cass and he says, I can't swim. And Cass is like, what? And then Cassian gets pushed off and he can't help him. And we don't know what happens to Kino. We hope that he didn't get pushed off and drowned, but I honestly think that he's a character that we could see show up in season two and be a pleasant surprise that he's that he somehow survived. So I, Pleasant as it would be, I don't think he survives. I think that is the last we will see of Kino, unfortunately. Hmm, well, I'll hold you to that when season two rolls around. <laughs> we'll see. That's my, that's, my, that's my chip on the table. We go from high stakes, adrenaline pumping prison escape, Kino's talk, to Luthen's talk, to Luthen's incredible monologue. The span of like five minutes. That's crazy. It's crazy. But before we go there, let's talk quick about Lonnie and talking about how he's a double agent. I believe this is where he's revealed to be a double agent and that he's actually working for Luthen while also officially working for the Empire. And this is a reveal that they did really well in revealing a spy versus episode nine, The Rise of Skywalker, where out of the out of, <laughs> oh, no. out of the freaking blue, General Huck says, I'm the spy. There is absolutely nothing that needed that to happen. There's no reason. What? There is no reason that needed to happen except they needed somebody to be a spy. And so Hux happened to be the spy. And yet he was the one who murdered thousands of people on the planet. It's so stupid. I liked him as a bad guy. He was a good bad guy. He, he was, was funny. He was so good. But dude, the way they revealed that spy versus the way they revealed Lonnie is really good. And granted, Lonnie is a background character. But that's what plays into his character. He was just there at the meetings. He had a couple lines. But then he's revealed as a double agent, and it works. It works because the story set it up that way. And obviously the way the reason General Hux was revealed as a spy is because they didn't have a consistent story. They didn't have a plan going into the sequel trilogies. But it's such a stark difference in how a spy is revealed. Well, to be honest, when I first saw Lonnie and he was talking to Luthen in the dark, shady alleyway, I was like, who the heck is this guy? Why is he important? And it was only when he gave us a piece of information about a, a rebel attack that the ISB knew about. I was like, oh, that's who it is. He did a really good job of making him a background character, as you said, who has lines, so he's not just someone who we're like, was he even in there? We know he's there, but we just forget about him in the chaos of everything else. But it, he's an important character, we learn. That's even the way that it is for the ISB. They, they hired him, but he's just kind of there. And they don't see him until it's important. And that technically, they haven't spotted him yet as the double agent. But that's how they see him, is just another worker who's doing his job and they have no complaints about. And yet, now suddenly, for us, he's revealed as a much bigger character than a much bigger quote-unquote problem than we realize and now we get to the most commendable part of this entire show this is where it peaked for me and this whole episode episode 10 crazy we have the breakout scene we have kino and his monologue and now we have luthan and first off the reveal that it's luthan standing right outside the elevator door really dramatic really cool but but lonnie is kind of upset he thinks, like I said earlier, that Luthen has nothing to sacrifice. He's he's risking nothing because he has nothing. All he is is a well-meaning antiques dealer who has a big hand in this operation, and he has nothing to sacrifice. Meanwhile, Lonnie has, we learn now, a wife and a kid mm-hmm. that he is 
trying, to, he's, he's essentially giving Luthien as much information as he knows about, and then he's bailing on him. He's like, I, I, I want to go live with my wife and my kid. I'm getting out of the ISB. I'm done. I'm dropping everything, all my ties. And yet Luthien kind of says, no, we need you. And yet Lani is, says, no, it's, it's too much of a risk. What are, what are you risking? What are you risking, Luthen? You're high up in your in your antique shop. All you have is that antique shop. That's all you're risking. What do you have to sacrifice? Luthen responds, home, kindness, and kinship, love. I've given up all chance at inner peace. I made my mind a sunless face. I share my dreams with ghosts. I wake up every day to an equation I wrote 15 years ago from which there's only one conclusion. I'm damned for what I do. My anger, my ego, my unwillingness to yield, my, my eagerness to fight. They've set me on a path from which there's no escape. I yearn to be a savior against injustice without contemplating the cost. And by the time I look down, there's no longer any ground beneath my feet. What is my, what is my sacrifice? I'm condemned to use the tools of my enemy to defeat them. I burn my decency for someone else's future. I burn my life to make a sunrise that I know I'll never see. Now the ego that started this fight will never have a, a mirror or an audience or, or the light of gratitude. So what do I sacrifice? Everything! Wow, that's crazy. Damn. It's it's oh my gosh. <laughs> I, I love it so much. So, so much to unpack in there. I think one of the the two lines that hit me the most are I'm making a sunrise that I know I'll never see and I have to use the tools of my enemy in order to fight them. It's it's really crazy that he says that's a climb. Because again, his double agent is an ISB agent, a, a member of secret police of the Empire. He's literally using the secret weapon that his enemy has as a secret weapon for his games. It's, it's such a beautifully written monologue. And and well acted too. Stellan Skarsgård, I believe, and many people have voiced this opinion as well, was very underutilized in the Thor movies and Marvel in general. He is an incredible actor and he delivered those lines with the same amount of intensity as Andy Serkis did with Kino's lines. Just an incredible insight into what they're thinking and their their position and their understanding of the world and the situation they're in right now. To have episode 10 be such a, a peak of the entire series and then to kind of, it didn't get boring for 11 and 12. It just didn't live up to the hype that I was expecting. Obviously episode 12 has a climax that we'll get to in a little bit, but it really kind of leveled off here after episode 10. I, I almost wish they had taken episode 10 and made that the finale. If that was the finale, Andor would have been so loved. But instead, they had to wrap up a couple of loose ends. They had to talk about Marva and Bix. I understand why. I just don't think it was executed well. Again, as you said, it's not that they're super boring. They're just dry. It kind of feels like we're... Eat we were going over the same material we had before. I would say these two episodes suffer from the need to go a certain amount of episodes. That's what a lot of Disney Plus shows have been falling prey to is something that could have been a movie, but been split up into six episodes, however many episodes, and put a lot of fluff in between. I know Kenobi really suffered from that. But... Kenobi! It could have been so good! <laughs> but we, we really feel it being spread out, spread pretty thin here in these last two episodes. It's 11 intro music. It's... Eager, exciting music, because again, we're just coming off of episode 10, that action-packed piece. But then we get 
belt, kind of like a just a single kind of bell ringing, and similar kind of evoking tones of the dude in like the first three episodes of Andor, whose only job is to climb up on the tower and hit the piece of metal over and over again. Kind of a foreshadowing, because he comes up later in episode 12, a minorly important role. But then at the end, it also gets very somber, again, kind of like a, a, a funeral march piece, which we later learn is foreshadowing. Episode 11 starts off, and Marv is dead. Sucks to be <laughs> It does suck, yeah. That that stinks, man. No, honestly, it it's the death of a very loved character. She was obviously the mother figure to Cassian, and he deals more with it later, but... Yes, it is the loss of a beloved character, not only to the show, but also for the for the town as well. It, it you can tell, especially B two EMO. It it affects him heavily. He looks like a a, a dog who whose owner has died, and he doesn't want to go anywhere or do anything. Yep, we'll talk about that more in a little bit. But after Luthen meets with Sagarera, which again Sagarera is kind of becoming a, a regular character, both with Rogue One, Clone Wars, and now this. He's becoming a good supporting character and kind of a background character to the off-world kind of gang that he has going on. But as Luthen is leaving, whew, an incredible it wasn't even like a it wasn't even like a space battle. It was just an epic escape on Luthen's part. And it was a space massacre. A space massacre, but not of who you would think. Luthen's got his little ship that's decked out with a hyperdrive and countermeasures and all that. When I mean, when you think about how a tractor beam would work, pulling in large objects. You would think the smaller object would fly faster. So of course, Luthen has installed many many bombs that will that he lets loose and destroys the tractor beam. It's genius on his part. He he was prepared and it it also makes a pretty cool scene. It's not mini bomb. It's just chunks of metal. Oh, it's just garbage. Reason, it was yeah, it was literally just his garbage he shot at the <laughs> tractor beam. And what's what's interesting about it is in Star Wars, the way shields work is it protects you from energy. That's why when two ships crash together, they explode. They don't just bounce off each other's shields because they're little pieces. So it's so genius that he has this little garbage gun, whatever you want to call it, and he uses it because the Imperials can't do anything about it because it's so tiny they can't shoot it, and it's physical so the shields don't work on it they can only just stand there and watch helpless as he destroys the tractor beam it's so <laughs> genius oh, oh but that it doesn't even stop there because then he has oh it doesn't it gets better <laughs> he has freaking lightsabers on the side of his ship like what so good <laughs> it's it's almost a suspend your belief for a second because it would take a master <laughs> ship a master captain to pilot a ship so that you use the lightsabers on the wings of your ship to take out TIE fighters. Like, it's, it's entertaining more than it's practical, but also it's within character. It, they, they had a cool idea, and they were able to use it properly. Like, Luthen could have done that. It's not completely unbelievable. In character, are you implying that you think Luthen is a Jedi? Oh, hmm. That is, is a question. I, I would I would entertain that idea, but also he has yes in season two. That, that could be a reveal in season two. I wouldn't be upset about that. It is kind of funny how we thought that Yoda and Obi Wan were the only two Jedi who survived, and now we're learning of a bunch of others like Cal Kestis and Grogu and Kanan and all of those people who are 
We're Jedi who survived, but yeah. Oh, I don't know. I almost don't want him to be a Jedi so that we get a series where there's no Jedi involvement anywhere. Yeah, but even if he is revealed as a Jedi, it doesn't really matter because he hasn't been a Jedi up to this point. He hasn't been flowing robes, lightsaber on his side. Yeah, I he's, just... kept, he's kept it out of his identity. Correct. I Oh, but it's... Disney. Yeah, I'll throw I'll throw in the ring with you. I think I think he ends up being a Jedi. Get revealed in season two that he's a Jedi. Yeah. So with episode twelve intro music, it's quiet and it starts off very off key. It it I'll be blunt. It sounds awful. It's really bad. It <laughs> it just sets us on edge. But then it starts, the different instruments start to work off of each other and come together and it sound, it starts to sound really good. It, it turns into a song that just is upbeat and just pushing us forward. So we get, we finally get to hear a little bit more of Nemec's manifesto that he gave or allegedly wanted Cassian to have. We don't know if he actually wanted that or if Vel just said that, but we get to hear him say it because it was... I don't know if it was recorded or if this is just another monologue from the dead where we get to hear his voice and his opinions on a rebellion and what it means. One thing he said that caught my ear was tyranny requires attention. Yeah. Well, why why did that catch your ear, Seth? I don't even know. I just think that it's so much harder to live a lie and keep that up, possibly knowing deep down that you're wrong, than living the truth and letting it happen naturally. And I guess that's something we can learn that if you're fooling yourself, it's a lot harder to make yourself believe that, whatever it is. And yet when you believe in the truth, whether it's a physical truth about our world or the capital T truth of Jesus, it's a lot easier to believe simply because you don't need to defend it with faulty assumptions. Yeah, I I agree with you on that. It's another way you could put it is having to keep up that lie on a personal one-on-one scale is exhausting, but also having to keep that lie up in a large group setting, or in this case, in a galaxy-wide setting, has to be beyond belief. Going to be times where that, that wall that has been built is going to fail, and when that does, it's bad. It's chaos. Mm. And talking about the real world, if you've been living a lie, whether it's your personality or you're doing something that you shouldn't be and you're telling people that you're not or this or that, when that lie gets discovered, which it always does, it always comes out in the end, it it ruins things. It ruins people's trust. It it, It ruins so many things. And I would say my mind goes not necessarily to a current application that for this, but along the lines of why we trust the accounts and the stories from the apostles and the book of Acts and all that. I've heard an apologist say that it is very difficult to keep a story straight among even a couple people, let alone thousands. And this is where we can find confidence in the Bible, where the apostles kept their story straight because it was true. Let's say, for example, they had made it up. They would have had to keep anyone from finding out any flaw in their story. They would have had to keep it They would have had to create a flawless story, and it's almost impossible. It's impossible to keep that up, especially now, now that it's been 2,000 years. It's impossible to keep a lie going for that long. And we can find confidence in that, that there's truth in what we believe, because it has stood the test of time. And and I'm not going to say it hasn't been without maintenance, but keeping a lie going as though it is true would be a lot harder. And we've seen this with other religions, needing to revise certain parts of their 
scriptures or whatever to fit the narrative that they need to push. The Bible has not needed any revisions because it has stood true from beginning to end. Yeah, it's it's crazy because it's something like when we go back and we look at the original manuscripts of the New Testament and we compare them to the translations that we have now, there's only like, a, it was either like 2% or 5% disconnect between them. And it, it's crazy because that is such a low, low number to any other manuscript from around that time. Like the, the example that I heard was Homer's Iliad, right? One of the most well-known, well-printed documents of the time period that it was. More recent, in fact, than the Bible. When you take the translations that we have now of that and compare that to the original, it's like 25 to 30% disconnect between them, I believe. So the fact that the Bible only has like a 5% disconnect, it's absurd and it shows you just how powerful God is in keeping his word not cluttered, not burdened down by anything, keeping it true according to what it is. Moving back to the actual story of the finale, it's great that they were able to write the characters in a way that they all naturally came back to this one location. And we know they're all there, but they don't necessarily know that everyone is there. We've been following these characters for three months in our time, and they all end up in the same spot. Not Mon Mothma, but all the characters have culminated to this spot naturally, not forced, to have a, a season finale where we get to have it all climax in big fight. Yeah, they're, they're all there about as naturally as you can make it. As you said, it doesn't feel like Disney was like, all right, well, just suddenly there's something that happens and, you know, Luthen is here and Cassian's here. As you said, it just kind of all feels like the natural swing of things. It just happens that everybody's at the same spot. You want me to talk about her, her speech? Yeah, again, another motivational speech that makes you feel the need to go to action. Yeah, she she does really well to get everyone listening to her. I, I mean, even the Imperials are silent and, and listening to what she says. And it's only until she starts to, until she says the Empire is a disease that thrives in darkness, that the Imperials start to make a move against her, her speech. Yeah. For those who pay really close attention, and so something that I do appreciate that Disney did is during, it, it looks like during the recording of Marva, she's in a hologram form, so you can see her, like, fit her person. It looks like her original script had an F-bomb in it right at the end. She says, fight the Empire. And if you look carefully at her mouth when she says that line, it doesn't look like she is making the fight look in her mouth. It looks very similar to if somebody were to drop an F-bomb. Yeah. I appreciate the fact that Disney took it out. But it is funny. It is funny that they missed the uh, the mouth shape. And as someone with a degree in animation, it's funny to see the production sometimes just miss things. Because you do miss things. And obviously they couldn't, they didn't have the ability to go back and re-record Marva's performance for the for the hologram, but it is just something they kind of had to deal with, and someone with keen eye noticed that. Well, another thing I want to touch on in this is when Marva starts inciting against the Empire, like the Imperial commander of that area walks up to B2EMO, who's projecting the hologram, and he, like, tries to throw his coat over the hologram, and he fails. So bad. 
It's awful. <laughs> EMO has a tiny little head. It's got to be two feet by two feet. This not guy's even. got a coat that fits his body. Not even. And he can't. It's like he misses. unable to cover it up. Oh, that's funny. It's, it's hilarious. <laughs> you can tell they're like, don't actually cover it up. But it's like, in that case, why even bother them? Because <laughs> it just makes him look... You know. And then at the end, when she F-bombs the Empire, not really, he then decides it's okay to flip B2 EMO. Yeah, that's not... That's unforgivable, you know? And he, he pays for it because Marva's brick, which is the death custom of Ferrix, is you get burned into a brick. Her brick meets his face. Just wanted to address the fact that that guy cannot throw a coat. I admire the effort. You know, I gotta give him props. <laughs> We're getting close to wrapping this up. Most of our characters get out from the fray. Andor saves Bix. In the melee that ensues, Karn finds Daedra and kind of kidnaps slash saves her and takes her into like a little maintenance warehouse. Luthen and his chummy pals escape out of there before things go haywire. Brasso gets us out, but Again, we get to see blasters do damage to people. People are getting, like, ragdolled by these blasters. Like, in the prison, people were getting thrown backwards. But here, people are just getting ragdolled around. I do think it's funny that the stormtroopers are actually hitting their shot. That's been the joke. <laughs> yep. That's been the joke for so long that they can't aim. But this is the first time. Maybe they. Maybe the writer just didn't like that. Obviously, he... He probably knows about that joke, but the uh, the stormtroopers are hitting their shot, and it's terrifying. That's that also shows like the stormtroopers have been a joke for forty years now, and so it, it's almost counter character to have them be intimidating like that and actually a good shot. But I think it's forgivable for this because nobody in that crowd had plot armor who they hit. No, no plot so, armor at all. When when. Nobody has plot armor. Stormtroopers are absolute snipers. Exactly. Well, Andor was a great show to watch. It has probably saved Star Wars, quite honestly. One thing I want to talk about before we finish up is I want to ask you what your opinion is on why Disney Plus decided to hide Andor multiple clicks away the day the finale released. It was not front and center like any other show that they had. Andor did not really perform well on Disney Plus, and yet it's not entirely not their fault. They deliberately put Andor multiple clicks away from the home screen if you wanted to find it. It's very odd. Do you have any thoughts on that? Well, it, it is very odd, but I think part of the reason could be because the, when they released the finale, they also released Tales of the Jedi, I believe it was. And that was more Clone Wars era stuff, and I think they were hoping that would draw, that would get a lot of attention and people would be more drawn towards that. I don't know why for the finale they hit it, doesn't make a lot of sense to it me. Wasn't, it wasn't just the finale. It was the last, I believe, two or three weeks. And I know Bombastic Clips covered it, and a couple other people were like, hey, this isn't normal. And you can say that it was because of Tales of the Jedi, but even if they do make the bad marketing decision to release two shows on the same day, they still promote both of them right on top of each other. I honest, My opinion is that Disney honestly has a little bit of beef with Tony Gilroy in how well fans loved Andor, and they're almost digging at him for making something good that people like and hiding it so that a casual viewer on Disney Plus doesn't go see it. That's it's a possibility considering when Disney has kind of stepped in and pointed out the direction they want something to go, like with Kenobi or Book of Boba Fett. It hasn't really performed all that well. And when you get an independent director, like in this case, Tony Gilroy, it performs really well. 
Could and, see that being a possibility, but who knows? Who knows? The one last thing I wanted to talk about is a video that I saw that wasn't even about Andor specifically. It was a interview between two editors, and they were talking about how this, this editor who worked on Andor edited certain shots. Not only the beat and everything and how the timing of each scene worked, but th- this editor revealed that he edits out blinks. And if you can huh. hold a stare, you can not the actors can't always hold a stare. And so if you can then in post remove blinking from the actors, it is a much more intense feeling. And he gives some examples. So I'll link that video down the, below along with another really great video essay that I found. But I believe this has been done multiple times before, but now we have AI and technology that can help make it flawless. And you wouldn't even notice it, but I believe mostly in the interrogation scenes with Dedra and Bix, you really notice that they do not blink at all. Or very little. Yeah. It's something, yeah. Well, when you bring it up, I realize, yeah, that that I can definitely see, I can definitely see that and understand why. I just never would have thought about it. If if this show had not come along and been as good as it was, the the Star Wars franchise would be in a pretty big ditch and I would not have been interested in anything that came out of the Star Wars Lucasfilm franchise anymore. But I'm excited for season two. I do have, while we're talking about season two, Seth, I have one last prediction guess for you. do kind of have a thread that's hanging that we haven't finished addressing yet, and that is Cassian's sister. Oof. question I have for you is going into season two, do you think she is going to show up in, in, the, in her adult person? Do you think she is going to show up? I do. I, I do think that that was something that they introduced, and yes, they didn't address it for the entirety of season one, but I believe <laughs> that season two will bring her into the picture and probably make her the focus of, if not one of those arcs, you know, those three episode arcs, the focus of possibly the entire season. Well, something that I just thought of now is Cassian said in episode one, people from Canari have dark features and big eyes. Girl Cinta from the Aldani arc helped who helped them braid the garrison. Do you think she could possibly be Cassian's sister? That is that could be interesting, having her hide in plain sight. That's a possibility. It might be intentional that we never really spent a lot of time with her and we did with all the other members of the of the heist group but that could be a possibility i would i would be pleasantly surprised i like that theory i just wanted that that one out there on record so that if it's right we can come back i can come back to this and be (laughs) like look i said it i was right i know i know what i'm saying i i don't think cassian's sister is going to show up in actual like live action style i think it's going to be mentioned that she's dead somewhere and he's going to go there and that'll be this the focus of an arc I don't think she's actually going to show up. Right? After claiming that Cinta is his sister and then saying, <laughs> no, it's not going to happen. That's a pretty bold <laughs> yeah. on your part. You, you got to play both sides. <laughs> you got to win either way. And your bets. It could be as late as fall 2024 when we get season two. No. So it's going to be a while before <sighs> season two comes out. But the anticipation will be ever present. We're looking forward to it. Season one was a thrill to watch. So many good moments. So much we can learn from it. Let us know in our Discord what you thought of Andor, if you've watched it or what you've heard of it. We'd love to have you join in some conversation over there. Follow our Instagram where we have 
some memes and we discuss things over there as well. Keep up to date on all of our releases and any updates over there. And also follow us on TikTok and YouTube where we have short form content, clips from the podcast posted there. Share this with your friends. Give us five stars. Follow us, whatever you need to do on the platform you listen to. We appreciate your guys' support. We're ever growing and we are excited for where this podcast is headed. We love you guys so much. Have a great rest of your day. Peace out. See you later.